Welcome back uh, to the Cato Institute's 2021 uh, virtual surveillance conference. Uh, we've got something a little unusual uh, for our next session, not, uh, not another panel, although there are policy implications and, uh, and angles here, um, but a practical demonstration. Um, the internet increasingly is not uh, just a network for uh, dogs to uh, call each other names on, but uh, a network connecting devices. Uh, increasingly ubiquitous, networked, uh, sensor-embedded uh, devices that are uh, shockingly vulnerable in a way that we would, uh, we would probably be horrified by um, if our phones and our laptops and our tablets um, were similarly susceptible to compromise. Uh, and indeed, we probably should be equally horrified that our uh, toasters and webcams and baby monitors and uh, increasingly automobiles um, have not been designed uh, with security at the forefront in the way increasingly we see is necessary. Uh, for our personal mobile devices. And so to not just tell you about that, but demonstrate it, uh, we have a couple of uh, excellent security researchers at the top of their field. Um, we have Bo Woods uh, with the Atlantic Council and Daryl Halen, who will uh, follow him uh, shortly thereafter, who's a principal in security research at Rapid7. Uh, I'll turn this over to Bo Woods. All right, thank you very much. Um, Welcome to the IoT hacking demonstration. Uh, I, I wear a lot of hats. Um, one of those, uh, as Julia mentioned, is I am a cyber safety innovation fellow with the Atlantic Council. Um, another one is uh, I'm an author and just got finished publishing a book called Practical IoT Hacking. Um, now, this book was not just to teach people how to break things. We also wanted to make sure that we contextualize this because, as Julian said, the Internet of Things is not just toasters and webcams and refrigerators. It's also medical devices. It's cars. It's building automation systems. It's the elevators that you get up, uh, go up and go down in every day in your, in your home or where you work. So given that, I wanted to prime this audience a little bit before we jump into uh, a hacking demonstration to help understand what the consequences are, what the impacts are, um, and to think about what some of the approaches are to address these things. We don't want to just leave you uh, confused, bewildered at how hackable the Internet of Things is. We want to equip you to be better able to understand the implications, understand what's at stake, and to take action. So increasingly, the Internet of Things is where we live. Uh, it's in our lives. And at this time of year, uh, you know, I typically go home around the holidays, and I always get asked a series of questions. They've been evolving over the last few years, but it usually starts with something like this. Hey, Bo, what's the most secure operating system? You know, I hear people talk about uh, Windows versus Mac, or this thing called Linux that I don't really know what it is, but they've got a really cute penguin for a mascot. Uh, which one should I be running on my home desktop? And I look at my very uh, technologically um, savvy uh, family um, that, uh, that they're just figuring out how to use phones and getting around on those. So, well, you know, any of these operating systems are securable by uh, sufficient expertise in the operator, the person using it. Um, for you, I'd recommend something very easy to use and then I point them to whatever they're, they're already on. 
um, because that's the one that they're most familiar with, most comfortable with. But we have a lot of information about how to secure these things and what people can do, and a lot of the security is already built in, so they don't have to think about it. The next question is always, what's the most secure mobile device? What should I be running? Should I get an Android? Should I get a Google Android? Should I get a, a, an Apple phone? I don't understand. Help me figure this out. And I say much the same thing. You know, the most secure device is the one that uh, you are able to secure the best on your own, where you know the potential things that can go wrong, where you can do something about them. And again, with these devices, we have a lot of really good architectural security diagrams. We have a lot of capabilities that are built in. Uh, and we've really been equipped to be able to make those smart choices. Increasingly, I get this question. Bo, what's the most secure fridge for me to buy? You know, I, I, I don't want those crazy adversaries knowing what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. How can I protect against uh, exfiltration of my lunch data? Um, and I say, well, you know, that's a little bit harder. We don't have all the information. But fortunately, I know uh, a lot of people working on uh, home IoT security, and so I can generally point people to a more securable and less securable uh, types of devices and equipment. Um, and so uh, a lot of that information is also available. Um, so we're okay there, uh, and increasingly more okay, about making the right choices, buying the right things, and being able to easily secure them in our homes and in the homes of our loved ones. Well, a few years ago was the first time I ever got asked, what car is the most secure? Um, and I go to a lot of car security conferences. I speak at car security conferences. I know people who do car security, uh, both uh, as consultants and work full time for automotive companies. And so I went to some of my friends and I asked them, you know, which car is the most secure? Like, I, I don't really know. I can't tell you because there's just not that much information out there. Um, and yet the consequences are really high. So the, the best positioned people in the world can't tell the difference between a securable car and a non-securable car. And if you looked a few years ago, you saw two or three demonstrations where people drove a car off the road uh, just remotely connected to it, not even sitting in the passenger seat. Uh, they drove it off the road. They were able to kill the engine, cause the stereo and the air conditioning to come on full blast. Um, and so we're entering an era where we have to think about car security. What is the cybersecurity of our vehicles? Because there may be adversaries who can take advantage of those. I think this is the one that uh, potentially scares me the most. It's which medical device is most secure. And here you see an implantable medical device. This is an implantable cardiac device, a, a pacemaker, or uh, something that'll uh, restart your heart if it happens to stop. Um, and one of my friends, Dr. Marie Mo, uh, who, when she was in her 20s, found that um, she needed a pacemaker. And it was an emergency situation, so she didn't have the chance to ask the doctors which pacemaker is the most secure. And that's a pretty daunting prospect to even think about. Um, instead, she woke up in a hospital with a device in her. And she's a security researcher, so she knows the implications of this. And so she started doing research on the types of medical devices and found that virtually all of them are insecure in some way, that adversaries could do harm. Now, fortunately, most of these devices have built-in protections to be able to prevent that. 
but you can't figure that out until you know way more about the device, way more about the specifics, and do your own research. Similarly, uh, some of my other friends are diabetics. And they, uh, being security researchers, they pulled apart their own insulin pumps to see how securable, how hackable are these things. And they found that in many cases with some techniques that uh, in the computer software world we knew not to use a decade ago, uh, they were still able to compromise those devices to uh, give what would have been a lethal dose of insulin if a patient were hooked up to it and doing that. And why is that the case? Why do we find that these systems are so uh, riddled with vulnerabilities? Um, one of the reasons is because any more software and IoT devices are not written from scratch. They're assembled from component parts, right? So uh, on the left side of this diagram, you can see lots of individual code libraries, lines of code. These are the, the very basic building blocks of the technology that we use. And these come from various different sources. Uh, if you're watching the news uh, today, um, cybersecurity news is all about the log4j vulnerability. Well, this is a small little package that's included in a ton of devices, a ton of online systems. It's everywhere. And this one little component, which is maintained by a group of volunteers, unpaid volunteers, um, it has a vulnerability in it that could allow adversaries to exploit it. But what happens is that gets pulled into other packages. Um, platform developers use that, and they create systems around it. Then they pass that on upstream uh, or downstream to uh, equipment manufacturers. Those equipment manufacturers build this in and silently hiding within that is a vulnerable component that could allow adversaries to impact hospitals. And so when that component exists, when there is a vulnerability in that component, oftentimes it may be included multiple times. So you don't even know where it is, even if you know that you are affected. And it can impact the entire chain of delivery, the supply chain and chain of delivery for hospitals, for uh, autonomous vehicles for aerospace, uh, and for the home Internet of Things devices. But I wanted to really drill in on this, this important distinction um, where the impacts of cybersecurity failures uh, have a consequence to human life and public safety. And there are many differences between what we normally think of as computing technology and these IoT devices, particularly cars, medical devices, aerospace equipment, trains. Um, first of all, the consequences are different. So the consequences are direct harm to human life. Uh, if you're riding in a car and it turns left all of a sudden, um, that can cause you direct harm. You don't have to wait for some chain of harms to happen uh, that an intentional adversary must conduct. Even sometimes accidental release of, of certain tools could have a direct consequence. Secondly, the types of adversaries may be different. Some types of adversaries will stay away from doing direct harm to people. Some adversaries will run towards it. So you've seen recently a lot of adversaries going after hospitals to shut down the ability of these hospitals to deliver care. They do that, do that by shutting off the laboratory systems, the radiology systems, and imaging. Uh, so now you're taking tools away from doctors. And they do that because they get a higher payout. So some adversaries are deterred by these consequences. Some adversaries run towards them. Uh, the type of contexts that these devices live in, 
Uh, I don't know about most people in the room and watching online, uh, but when I am in the car, I generally don't travel with an IT staff to be able to support the system that's running, the multiple computers, sometimes hundreds of computers, in a car, the always-on internet connections that are in a car. Um, these devices are mobile. They don't have uh, support staff around them. Um, it's harder to just pull the plug if something, if you're worried about something not working. Um, the economics are different. So you have really tiny, inexpensive chipsets that uh, it's hard to add security because it adds so much cost in comparison with the, the cost of the chipset. In addition, a lot of these devices may be millions of dollars. An MRI machine is a couple of million dollars if you want to replace it. So you can't just say, oh, this one's insecure. Let's put another one in its place. Um, the components can be different. So a lot of these are always on, always connected to the internet. Now, uh, our mobile phones are always connected to the internet as well, uh, but they don't have components in them that can, that can cause physical harm. Um, they're not hooked up to uh, IV bags at a hospital. They're not hooked up to um, two-ton vehicles uh, that are controlled by wire. And finally, timescales are different. Some of these devices are specced to be in place for 10, 20, 40 years. If you go into a power plant, for instance, their return on investment for some of these systems is many, many decades long. And as long as they're serving their useful purpose, there's no reason to replace them. However, the software technology that underlies it, the hardware technology, computing hardware, has an age that's much, much shorter than that. So there's a mismatch in those timescales. In addition, the timescale on which harm can manifest is very, very short. It takes seconds rather than days or weeks to realize harm in some of these devices. So let's look at a specific example of this. This is the audience participation part. So whether you're in the audience here uh, at the Cato Institute or whether you're at home, just shout it out to your screen. Don't worry, people will think you're a little bit nuts to, to talk to your computer, but these days computers talk back. So uh, just by shouting it out, um, how many computers do people see in this picture right here? Three, five, 12 maybe? Well, I made it a little bit easier to see. So I count uh, about seven or eight computers, depending on how you want to break up some of these systems. That's eight computers keeping this, this child alive in the natal intensive care unit. And these all equip doctors and caregivers to be able to uh, deliver top quality care at low costs with high reliability. This is the thing that, that helps our modern medical system work. Now, what's the most important asset in this picture to protect? Again, just shout it out. Who thinks they know? The baby, that's right. So the patient. And what I want to get across is sometimes the approaches that we use to protecting confidentiality of data like we usually do on computer systems might be at odds with protecting the integrity and availability of human life. And when the assets that we want to protect are not data-driven, when they're something else, when they're less replaceable, um, we may have to take different approaches. So then what can we do? Well, one of the things that we can do is we can get uh, people like, like myself and Daryl, uh, the hackers, the security researcher community, and make them more a part of the, the solution. We are a national resource for the United States and globally 
the hackers in the country are a national resource and a global resource uh, to help improve the lives of people through um, finding vulnerabilities and getting them fixed, and even better, through uh, helping organizations avoid vulnerabilities in the first place or build better pathways. And this is a, an initiative that I launched a few years ago called We Heart Hackers. And it was an attempt to get um, the US government, regulatory body, the medical device makers, and security researchers together to help address some of these common issues um, towards common goals that we all have and support. Second thing, I alluded to, to Log4j uh, earlier on. This is the anatomy of the Log4j attack, and this is a great uh, document published by Swiss CERT. Um, I'm not going to step through it, but essentially what I want you to take away from this is that Log4j is deeply embedded in the supply chain. So what tools do we have to reveal what is in our supply chain, to give us visibility? There's a concept called a software bill of materials. This is the idea that just like with a piece of hardware, with a car, you have a bill of materials that tells you where each nut and washer was produced, what factory, what week it was produced, so that when there's an issue, you can really quickly track it down and get rid of it, replace it with something that uh, is more stable and better able to operate. We can do the same thing with software. It's trivially easy in most cases when you're building software, building IoT devices, to have this software bill of materials that lets you see what's in the devices that you're making so that you can support it in future. If then you're able to pass that on to the buyers, to the operators, or to uh, an independent third party like an information security and analysis center, then we have a way when something else like this comes out that's deeply embedded in the supply chain, we can really quickly triage and address some of the security vulnerabilities so that they cannot cause harm. So adversaries can't take advantage of that and take control of the devices that are now increasingly in our lives. We can also use uh, procurement mechanisms, procurement vehicles, to select more secure, securable IoT devices. And uh, the uh, IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act uh, was passed into law in 2020, signed in uh, just at the very, very end of last year. Um, and essentially, this equips the federal government to be better able to procure devices that are secure and securable based on uh, industry standard benchmarks. Um, it sends a message to the manufacturers, to the vendors, that this is what we expect from you, that this is the table stakes. And that creates uh, incentives for people to build better systems. Things like avoiding known um, credentials or hard-coded credentials that can't be changed so that anyone on the internet can know what your password is. It's things like providing software updates so that when a better way is known, uh, we can automatically deploy those. Um, it's things like taking help from others who find flaws, uh, who find vulnerabilities so that they can get fixed before the adversaries can know about them and take advantage of them. And then finally, um, building with better baselines in mind. So the UK government has put out, uh, they call it a, a code of practice for consumer IoT security. And this is guidance for manufacturers to be able to build against, to sell into the UK market more easily. And they're talking about maybe doing some labeling uh, or maybe uh, as many of the, the consumers that they talked with, um, having a, um, uh, a barrier to entry to the market for the low cost, low hygiene devices uh, that don't have the security that consumers already expect. To have some way to communicate that 
uh, to the buying public. And with that, I will bring Daryl up onto the stage. Um, Daryl is going to uh, do a demo for us of hacking this uh, webcam that he's got sitting up here. Daryl, take it over. Thank you, Bo. Start by ending this show. So yeah, we have an IP-based camera here. This is kind of a, a, a common type camera. A lot of these are sold on uh, various sales sites on the internet. I purchased this one about two or three years ago. Uh, the interesting thing about this was one of the reasons why I purchased it, beside it having vulnerabilities that I wanted to look at, was that I purchased it about six months after the vulnerabilities were disclosed. The purpose of that was I was interested in what level, the, uh, what level of devices, kind of that supply chain thing. When these devices are manufactured, they're produced by the millions, they go into warehouses, they can't be patched when they're in warehouses. So you have to patch them when you get home with them. So we're looking at a screen right now. This happens to be the logon screen for this device. So initially, if I'm going to hack something like this, what I want to do is try some of the default passwords. In this case, we know the default password is admin, but it pops up and says, hey, this is actually doesn't work. The password's been changed. The consumer was good enough to change the password before they deployed it. But this device has some interesting vulnerabilities. The vulnerability that one of the vulnerabilities it has happens to be what's known as a direct object reference. What that means is, in spite of the fact that there's actually a logon page, if you know the URL of the website on the device that you want to get to, you can just make a request and go to it. So we got a couple here. So let's go ahead and take a look at this, see how this works. So as you see, we're able to actually get into the camera in spite of the fact that there was a logon page. This is a common vulnerability, not only on IoT devices, but on websites on the internet also. Very common issue. But as an attacker, we always want to go to the important stuff. So this device obviously has configuration pages, CGIs on it, that are used to set up and configure the device. One of them happens to be the one used for the user accounts, user passwords. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and just do a direct object reference to the user configurations. And now we actually have all the accounts on the system. So instead of having to guess all the URLs, we can just pull the actual password down. put that on the device, and hopefully if everything's good, we're actually able to get into the camera. So now we've bypassed it, all the security and camera because the device was nice enough to give us literally all the passwords that have been configured on the device. Besides this vulnerability, this device had a number of other vulnerabilities. One of the interesting ones was a, a uh, operating system command injection. So let's jump over to that screen there and take a look at that. So if we jump over here to the logon page on this device here, uh, again, same device, we're looking at this. 
We know we can get past the security on the device, but can we execute code on this? Turns out the command injection on this does not respond back within the URL window or the web browser window. Let's bring up the, the actual command here. So when we're looking at this, what we're looking at is the actual command IP test. So the vulnerability on the actual devices within the CGI script code is put on there. It's making a call to the operating system ping command. This, is, this is always leads to flaws on devices. Anytime there is a execute call or system call to a device command that is part of the operating system, if it isn't properly escaped or filtered, you could possibly gain or, 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 or connect commands together. And that happens to be the case here. So instead of doing an IP test or ping google.com, we're actually concatenating this command on here. And what that command says is we want you to cat or read the file etc password. We want you to pipe it to the telnet command. And at the same time, we want you to connect to an off-site system and actually pass the contents of that file to us. So let's go ahead and start up a listener. And I'm just going to use a tool called Netcat, which is kind of the uh, Swiss Army knife for hackers. So we're going to set Netcat up to listen on port 7777. Then we'll go ahead and we will copy this over. We'll run it. And hopefully everything will work nice. This is a Well, probably good if I start Netcat. There we go. So as soon as we start Netcat up, you can see that it actually executed the command, read the password file, connected to Telnet on, that, on the device. And the Telnet connected to my machine, and it passed the contents of that file over here. So we actually passed the Linux operating system root hash password over here. So now that we have that, let's go ahead and we placed it in here. We copied it into a file, and we're going to save that file out. We're going to feed this into John, which, uh, John the Ripper, which is a password cracker. And at this point, it should run through a list of passwords. In this case, I fed it a list of 200,000 passwords. Uh, and you can see we checked 200,000 passwords against that hash. And we got the password of cat1029. This happened to be another flaw in the system. That password turns out to be hard-coded on the system, what we consider a hard-coded password meaning the typical user is not going to be able to change that normally because it's hard-coded in there, and this operating system is not a writable operating system. So even if he could get in here, he couldn't alter it. So this creates a problem on this device where the device can turn around, and in many cases, this was a common problem that existed on a number of IoT devices that were part of the Myra botnet. Was this device part of it? Probably. It's a hard-coded password. So we can go ahead and 
Telnet into the actual device. as root and use the password cat1029 and we're actually logged on the device. You see all the stuff on it, we can check who am I and I am actually root on this device. So there's kind of a series of vulnerabilities uh, that are very common. The direct object reference to be able to bypass security implementations or security password screens is very common. I've used that as a pen tester. I worked for over 10 years as a pen tester. This exists everywhere, common problem. Remote command execution, being able to sync uh, vulnerabilities into a, a device or code and execute it, another very common vulnerability on embedded IoT devices. We find that on a regular basis all the time. So I think this was a, a good demonstration. Uh, it showed some common vulnerabilities we see on these type of devices. And thank you very much. Um, yes, sir. Tell me. Uh, with that level of access, um, you could do things like uh, get the video off of it without the, the owner knowing, right? And yeah, there's, the there's a number on. of things. Besides being able to get access to this device and probably put my own code on it, and use it as a pivot point, which is another common attack. Uh, we've used a number of times to actually vulnerable cameras like this on engagements where we've actually connected in to the camera, set up reverse shells, and we're able to pivot through camera systems into various parts of an internal company. We've done that. Also, you talk in the video. These devices may be in what we consider private areas, internal to your house. If there was a level exposure to the internet, you took the camera and you go, hey, I want to be able to log in over the internet to the web interface and gain access to what's going on in my house through the camera directly, then yeah, this vulnerability can be used by anybody to do the exact same thing and view the contents of the videos. And you've, you've tested more than just webcams. You've tested medical devices, you've worked on cars, other IoT devices, uh, a lot of other things that you did before you uh, left the military are most of the IoT devices that you see, are they um, similarly well or poorly protected? Are there some that are more or less? What makes the difference? I see a, I see a big mix. When, when I see camera devices or IoT devices that I consider white label, they're mass produced and relabeled by multiple of people, you often don't have a level of accountability on those devices. And that's where I see the most vulnerabilities in those type of devices. Devices that are owned by or produced by companies that have a reputation to protect. They are a branded company. They have a brand name to protect. I see more of a proactive approach from those organizations to think about security. They're the ones going out and getting uh, testing done on their products. They're the ones that are quickly patching the products. They're the ones that have security programs internally so researchers can actually contact them and get these issues fixed. Excellent, thank you, Daryl. And thank you. Uh, that's all from us. And uh, Julian, I think you're gonna go into a quick break or are we gonna keep rolling? Um, panel. Thank you both so much. That was fantastic and terrifying. Um, we're just going to uh, cut out for maybe five minutes while we reset the stage. Uh, and then we'll be back in, again, just about five minutes with our final block of flash talks at the uh, 2021 Cato Virtual Surveillance Conference. See you soon. <laughs>